As most of you know, I'm endeavoring to preach through the book of Revelation. I'm making my way through it, whether it qualifies as preaching or not. I'm not exactly sure. My uncle called me this past week, and he listens to me on Sunday. He said that it's more lecturing than preaching. It is uh, is a challenge for me. You know, this is not the way I usually preach, uh, taking large sections like this, but it's been beneficial for me. I hope that it's been beneficial for you as well. My text this morning will begin in Romans, uh, Revelation chapter 8 and verse 13. I preached from the rest of chapter 8 last week. I'm not going to read it quite yet. I need to give you just a little bit of introduction. Uh, I, I like nursery rhymes, Mother, Go- Mother Goose nursery rhymes. And uh, I have a book in my library that is the annotated Mother Goose. It's hundreds of pages. And on a small nursery rhyme, I don't, know, I don't know if kids today grew up hearing nursery rhymes. I should have asked some of these college students how many nursery rhymes they know. But uh, many of us can, you know, finish Jack Be Nimble, Jack Be Quick, and so on. Uh, Mary Had a Little Lamb, that one's fairly well known. Uh, the one that I'm going to use as, a, as a, an, illust- an illustration right now is... Uh, ring around the rosies, pocket full of posies, ashes, ashes, we all fall down. And uh, when we were little kids, we would join hands and would go around. There wasn't a rose bush in the middle, but it was just something we'd go around in a circle. And when we said ashes, ashes, we all fall down, then we would all fall down to the ground. And it was great fun, and we would laugh and, uh, and do it again. And uh, that's, that's the way that we entertained ourselves before the days of videos and cell phones. I was thinking as I heard you singing a few minutes ago, is there any, is there any other place on earth, that, in America at least, that people still gather and sing songs? It used to be fairly common, you know, at, uh, uh, some of these older people can talk about birthday parties that they would go to and somebody would say, hey, let's all gather around the piano and sing a few songs. I just dare you to try that at a birthday party today. They'll look at you like you're from a different age. But uh, nursery rhymes, there's a very, very pleasant rhythm to them. There's just something fun about saying them. Uh, But as I've told you, there are four different approaches to the book of Revelation. And I wondered, what uh, what if the little nursery rhyme, Ring Around the Rosies, appeared in the book of Revelation? How would it be interpreted? Well, one way of interpreting the book of Revelation is to see that virtually everything in the book of Revelation is future. And so if a futurist came across Ring Around the Rosies, then he might say, uh, in, in the last days there will be a cult that will arise and the sign of the cult will be roses. And... Uh, It will be a time of famine, and so people will try to fill their pockets with the petals from the roses, but uh, the Antichrist will come and turn all of those rose petals to ashes, and the people who tried it will fall down dead. That would be a futurist approach to ring around the rosies. Another uh, approach to the book of Revelation is the, uh, the historicist approach. There actually is a historicist uh, interpretation of Ring Around the Rosies. Historicists, I remind you, 
would find the various things that are mentioned in the book of Revelation as historical events. Maybe not all of them have happened yet, but many of them have happened. And so a historicist would say, well, Ring Around the Roses was actually written during the time of the bubonic plague in, uh, in the Middle Ages. And uh, when someone became sick, there would be a feverish flush. They would become a rose color, and then pretty soon there would be buboes that would raise up, little uh, big, great big pimple-like things. When that happened and there was a ring around the roses, uh, you were dead, ashes, ashes, we all fall down. Maybe you've heard that. That actually is a theory about the history of the little nursery rhyme ring around the roses. I don't, I don't think that it's accurate, but that would be an example of a historicist approach to that nursery rhyme. The idealist approach to the book of Revelation finds that there are spiritual principles that are laid down and that they're not limited to any particular century in the past or in the future, but these are things that, that happen over and over throughout history. And so, Ring Around the Rosies uh, would say, uh, we all have a tendency to place our hope in beautiful things like the rose bush and to find all of our happiness there. But when we do, it always ends disastrous, disastrously, ashes, ashes, we all fall down. So that would be a historicist approach. The preterist approach to the book of Revelation is the view that I espouse. And that is that most of what has happened in the book of Revelation was fulfilled. Most of what is described in the book of Revelation was fulfilled when the city of Jerusalem was destroyed in A.D. 70. And uh, so a, a, a person like myself, a preterist, might come to ring around the rosies and say, actually, there is a story that is written of one day a grandfather was seeing his children, his grandchildren play around a rose bush and uh, he just started saying to himself, ring around the rosies. And one of the children picked a rose and put it in her pocket. And that came up with a pocket full of posies. And then the children would just uh, laugh and play and fall down. And that's how he came up with the last stanza. Nothing really mystical about it. Nothing future to be fulfilled. It's just a grandfather who saw this happening and wrote it down. We don't know the origin of most nursery rhymes, but I wouldn't be surprised if that is the origin of that. So coming to the book of Revelation, that was just a, a summary and a reminder, and then we have a number of visitors this morning, and so just to let you know, if you're hearing things from the book of Revelation this morning that you've never heard before, it's probably because mostly in the United States we have heard the futurist approach to the book of Revelation. And uh, I don't think that we should make this a test of faith. I think that people can be futurists and still hold to all of the essential doctrines of the faith. Um, and uh, so I, I don't think that this is a first-tier issue. So, but anyway, in, in case this is the first time that you're hearing it, that's why it sounds so different. Another illustration that may help is uh, springs from uh, my love of art and uh, observations that I have about art. I enjoy going to art museums. And there are some pieces of art that are remarkable for their lack of detail. You might think of the Impressionists, the most famous of whom I think is Claude Monet. So uh, no real sharp outlines in anything that he draws, just little flecks of paint. Uh, 
Uh, but, but still, there is a story that it awakens in you when you see these. So, uh, and then on the other hand, there are some works of art that are remarkable for their detail. And uh, when you look at them, you just say, wow, it, took, it must have taken him hundreds of hours to do this painting. But if the only thing remarkable about a painting is its attention to detail, it will not be a great painting. It has to awaken story in you. Uh, when I was in Thailand walking around street markets, there were people there who would have a photograph that they were reproducing exactly with a pencil on paper. I mean, you just couldn't tell the difference between the black and white photograph and the picture that they were making. The real skill of an artist is not in his ability to capture something exactly as it appears in nature. The real skill of an artist is to rise above the things that he or she sees in nature and awaken story in the person who sees them. There's got to be something inside of you that resonates with a painting or it, it ends up being entirely forgettable. And uh, so it, it might remind you of something or it may just help you to uh, re- uh, think of a, uh, a pleasant place that you enjoy, uh, a pleasant person that you have known. My observation is that paintings of ugly people rarely rise to the level of being remembered for long. It's almost always attractive people who are, uh, who are there, or it could, be, it could be unattractive people who are in a very interesting situation. Think of some of the paintings that maybe the Dutch masters did. It's all very dark, and maybe it's someone who is half drunk at a saloon, and there's a, a woman who is waiting on them. And you can tell that they're all seedy characters, but it awakens, it awakens story in you. If, if you go to the art museum and you, you spend all of your time just look, you think, how did he make that color? Now, that's a very fascinating question, but... Because he didn't just go down to, uh, he just didn't go down to the local craft store and pick it up. He had to make the color. But if, if you go to the art, the art museum and that's all you do is look at the detail and you say, well, I don't like this picture because it doesn't look like anything, uh, then you're probably not going to have a very good experience at the art museum. Uh, just as a side note, I certainly am not of the opinion that everything that someone calls a piece of art is a piece of art. Uh, when, I was, uh, when I was teaching at a college, they put up some new paintings on the walls. And I said, I said to the dean, I said, is this the best we can do? You know, it, just, it looks like something that a, a kindergartner could have done. Is this the statement that we want to make about art? We were a Christian college. Is this, is this what we want to say about art? Is this the best we can do? That's just a side note. So I don't think that everything that somebody says, well, I just feel this way and therefore I put it on paper that I should acknowledge that it's art. As I told you several weeks ago in an illustration, I believe that art is the deliberate attempt to, the deliberate attempt to make truth beautiful. Sometimes that can be accomplished by making evil unattractive. But uh, I don't think that, I think that an artist has a responsibility to make truth beautiful, to make sin ugly. And uh, art, of course, doesn't apply just to the sort of paintings that I've been talking about. It applies to writings like the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is a work of art. It is inspired 
by the Holy Spirit and comes as close to being dictated as anything I know of in the Bible. And uh, so it really could be said, not the revelation of John, but as it is called in chapter 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him. And then he tells John and shows John what he wants, what he wants to be written. And uh, so in this, in this method of communication, it's very artistic. I think that if you get caught up in the details, you're going to miss the big picture. And uh, so that, that philosophy of interpreting the book of Revelation will probably be nowhere as clear up to this point in the series as it will be today. There are many details that we're going to encounter here, and uh, we kind of rub our hands together and say, oh boy, here we go. What are the locusts? Why do they have crowns on their heads? Uh, why, why do they have tails like scorpions? And if that's what you're looking for, then you might be a little disappointed with what you hear from me this morning. I think that it's big picture, and just to give you an overview of what I find in chapter 9, what I believe is in chapter 9, I believe that the first part of chapter 9 describes an invasion of demons. Well, now that is pretty lurid, isn't it? That is, that is pretty racy. That's why I chose as my scripture readings, first of all, when Jesus cast a demon out of the, the man at uh, Gadarene, the Gadarene maniac, he's commonly called historically, when he, call, when he calls that demon to come out, he says, Tell, what's your name? And the demon says, Legion, for we are many. And they were begging Jesus not to send them into the abyss. Now, both an enormous number, like Legion, will come up in this text, and also the abyss. So this demonic invasion that we're getting ready to read about comes out of the abyss. And then I also read as a scripture reading from the book of Matthew, when Jesus gave a, uh, a story about a, a demon that was cast out of a person, and the demon went looking for somewhere else to live, and he never found a good place, and so he decided he would go back to the person out of whom he had been cast. And when he goes back, he finds that the house is cleaned up and set in order. Wow, this is great! And he goes and he gets seven of his demon buddies... And they all eight go and live in that person. Now, you know, I've been trying to explain the Bible since I was about 14 years old. So for a long time, I've been trying to explain parables like that. And the way that I have always explained it is that I would say, when you, when you repent of sin, it's like you're cleaning up your house. It's not enough, though, just to get rid of the bad stuff. You need to replace it with the good stuff. And I think that that is true. But what I have ignored my whole life is the last sentence that Jesus says after telling that story. He says, so will it be with this generation. It wasn't a story about when you clean up your life, you need to replace, it with, replace the negative with the positive. It was a story about a, a terrible demonic invasion that was getting ready to come upon the Jews of that generation. And I think we read about it in my text this morning. 
This text is introduced at the end of uh, chapter 8. So verse 13 says, Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So we're in the midst of the passage of Scripture that describes the seven trumpets. We've already seen the first four, but then the last three are separated from the first four. And they're interrupted by this eagle who is flying and saying some really bad stuff is about to happen. Years ago, when I was a boy, there were some 78 RPM records that were at our house. I don't know where they came from. Uh, Someone gave us a record player when I was probably uh, in the 7th or 8th grade, and I started playing these 78 RPM records. There were several in the collection by Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys. So I'm looking around for nodding heads. Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys. Anybody ever heard of Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys? Okay, I can see three or four people who have heard. And uh, I know that some of you young guys like to hear a story songs, you know, Marty Robbins and that kind of thing. You ought to check out Bob Wills and the, and the Texas Playboys. Well, one of these uh, 78 RPMs had, uh, obviously, Bob Wills and his band had recorded it during the days of World War II. It's a fun song to sing. I'm not going to sing it for you, but I hope I can remember the lyrics for you. It goes like this. There will be a sad day coming for the foes of all mankind. They must answer to the people, and it's troubling their mind. Everyone, everybody who must hear them will rejoice on that great day when the powerful dictatorships are taken all away. There will be smoke on the water, on the land, and on the sea when our army and navy overtake the enemy. There will be smoke on the mountains where the heathen gods stay, and the sun that is shining will go down on, down on that day. Hirohito, along with Hitler, will be riding on a rail... Mussolini will beg for mercy as a leader he has failed. But there'll be no time for pity when the screaming eagle flies. That will be the end of Axis. They must answer with their lives. It's called Smoke on the Water. There'll be smoke on the water. No, it's not the deep purple version. So uh, there'll be smoke on the water. Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys. And uh, But I, I, I bring it up because... Of course, the eagle is the rep- representative of the United States of America, and uh, that, I'm sure that's what the author of that uh, song had in mind. But throughout history, an eagle has been a, a, a war bird, a bird that is uh, announcing war, a, war that, a bird that is a signal of war. You can read in the history of the clashes between the Greeks, and, and so on, back through history. If an eagle shows up, oh man, then all the prophets start going wild about what it means. And uh, so, uh, the eagle was also one of the signets of the legions of Rome. And I think that when Jesus says, you know, the disciples asked him, when is this going to take place and where? And Jesus says, wherever the corpse is, there the eagles will be gathered. I think he's anticipating the invasion of Palestine by the Romans 
and they're coming into the land. I'm not sure if this is, has a d- direct Roman reference right here. It could be just that he's saying this is uh, a, a bird that is associated with war. And so it is the eagle who is announcing these woes. But now let's see. The, the first major invasion is a horde from hell. And then later on in the chapter, we will see a horde of Romans from beyond the Euphrates. But first of all, let's look at this horde from hell. Verse, chapter 9, verse 1. And we will first of all look at the origin of this horde. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. It becomes clear as we go on that this angel is the devil. So he's clearly identified later on. But this is the devil fallen from heaven to earth. When that happened, we don't know. The Bible does not specifically spell out how Satan came to be Satan. But the implication is pretty strong that he was at one time a good angel. And he marshaled a rebellion against the Lord and uh, was cast down to the earth. And uh, later on the book of Revelation, it will describe him as a great red dragon who took one-third of the stars of sky out, out of heaven with him. And that would, so it seems like that it would be about one-third of the heavenly host went along with the demonic rebellion. I'm not sure where all these demons are now. You know, when Jesus was on earth, then... Uh, there, were, there was a lot of widespread demon possession. And in the story that we read in one of our scripture readings, this uh, man at Gad- Gadara has a legion of demons in him. And they're begging him, don't send us into the abyss. And they also said to him, I know who you are, Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. Have you come to torment us before our time? And so, just uh, I, I don't have all this worked out. I'm still learning about it, but where are all of the demons now? I'm not sure, but at the destruction of Jerusalem, apparently a great number of them were let out and caused huge trouble in Jerusalem. I uh, brought with me uh, one of the volumes of the works of Josephus, and if I don't forget, I'll read you something a little later on from the works of Josephus. But Josephus uh, writes in his history of the Jewish war with Rome on just how wicked this generation was. Uh, That he he would say there has never been a generation that is so wicked, so prone towards crime and immorality. And uh, as I've told you before, there were more Jews in Jerusalem who were killed by Jews than were killed by the, uh, the Roman forces. What's the explanation for that? I think this is the explanation for that, that there was unprecedented demonic activity that was unleashed on the people of Jerusalem. So we can read about it here. He opened the shaft to the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. And so All of these, whatever we're about to see, they come out of the shaft of the abyss. They come out of the shaft of the bottomless pit. First of all, there's just smoke. 
so much smoke that it darkens the air and the sun, and then out of the smoke come these, these horrible demons, which are here described as swarming locusts. Look at what it says in verse 3. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions on the earth. So here's a combination of two things that, uh, that are very scary to most people. Uh, of course, we live in a part of the country that doesn't have scorpions, thank God, but we do have stinging insects. And uh, uh, as most of you know, I'm a beekeeper, and so I've had some experience with being in the midst of, the, of swarming insects that can hurt you. Uh, when a swarm of bees leaves a hive, before they leave the hive, they engorge with honey, and that makes them very happy, and so they're very docile, very gentle. Many times I have hived a swarm of bees without wearing any kind of protective equipment, just walk up to it, T-shirt, no helmet, just shake the swarm of bees down into a box. They're very happy then. But you let them stay up there for three or four days and get rained on in a cold night, you better put on a suit of armor because they are grumpy. When I was uh, pastoring in, uh, in Kansas City 20 years ago or more, there was a young man in the church, about 14 years old, who was really interested in beekeeping. He knew more about beekeeping than most beekeepers. And I asked him one day, have you ever seen inside a colony of bees? He said, no. I said, well, you want to come over and look in mine? Oh, yeah. So he was eager about that. So his mom brought him over. And uh, it was a, a cloudy, dreary, rainy day, cold. You're better off just leaving the bees alone. But I'd received some queens in the mail that day, and I needed to install these queens. And so in order to install the new queens, I had to find the old queens and that can be a very invasive process. So I suited this boy up. I, I put gloves on him and clothed him from head to toe. And if a bee got through all of that armor, it would be a miracle. So while we were there, these bees were, they were eager to get at us. They were hitting us on the helmet. Uh, it, I know it will sound crazy to you, but I, use, I don't mind getting stung seven or eight, ten times on the hands. But if, they, if I think I'm going to get stung 20 or 30 times, I'm going to put some gloves on. And so that day I put on gloves. These bees were mad. And uh, so we're bent over this hive, and I'm showing him things, and we're trying to find the queen. And it sounds like rain on our helmets. These bees are hitting us so hard. And uh, this young man, his, his voice had not gone, gone uh, deep yet, and he says in a very high-pitched voice, I think I just got stung. I said, have you ever been stung before? He said, no. I said, well, it hurts pretty bad. You'll know it. You'll know it if you get stung. And about that time, somehow a bee got inside his helmet, and he got stung, and he panicked, and he ripped his helmet off. And those bees converged on him, and he fell down on the ground. And tried, When bees attack you, they try to go for your ears and mouth and nose and eyes. God designed them that way to protect themselves. They know where it hurts most, and so they just go for your... So he, these bees were going in his nose and mouth and ears, and he's trying to get them off. I said, run through the woods! Well, sometimes that'll throw the, throw the swarm off. And he went running through the woods, and I could hear him over there saying, oh, Mr. Oric, please help me. And so I went over there, I took his helmet, and he, the kid was about to pass out. 
So I put his helmet on him. There were bees in his ears. and uh, I, I was afraid he was going to go into shock. But he didn't. He did vomit, but uh, he didn't go into shock. And he didn't have any adverse. He didn't have to go to the doctor and so on. So, but he got stung a lot. I'm telling you, it's hard, it's hard to get more horrified than when you have got a, an angry swarm of thousands of stinging insects and uh, in order for, uh, if you're not allergic to bee stings, it takes thousands to, to kill you. Uh, you know, it's, it's something like 100 for every pound of body weight you've got to get stung. Uh, but, uh, of course, if you are allergic, one bee sting will do it. But it still is not pleasant, you know. I, I, I've been in situations where I've been stung 40 or 50 times, and you start looking for a place to get away right quick. But bee stings don't kill you, usually. But scorpion stings... These locusts, these demons are described as swarming like locusts and having the power of scorpions. Now, usually when when locusts show up in a Middle Eastern country, they eat everything that is green. But that is not the mission of these locusts. Their power is limited. It says in verse 4, they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And so here comes this swarming demonic horde out of the abyss of hell. But somebody tells them, don't eat any grass or trees or leaves. Don't eat any of that. Go after people. But you notice there was one class of people that they were not allowed to attack. Don't attack the people who have the seal of God on their foreheads. Now, I don't think that this was a literal mark. I think this is a metaphorical way of saying these are the people who belong to God. And, um, and so they were not allowed to kill the people and not allowed to torment the people who had the seal of God. But verse 5 says they were allowed to torment those that they did sting. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. At that time, uh, I don't think that we need to look for a literal fulfillment of everything that we read here, but this five-month period was literally fulfilled. There was a five-month period when the siege was especially intense and the uh, the intramural fighting among the Jews in Jerusalem was obviously demon-possessed. In those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. Let me read to you a, uh, a paragraph from Josephus, who was alive uh, at the time of the Jewish war. In fact, as, as I told you, he, his town, Jatapata, was captured by the Romans fairly early, but uh, Josephus made friends with the Roman ruler, Titus. He would later be the emperor. He made some favorable predictions that one day Titus would be emperor. And so Titus showed favor to Josephus, and Josephus became a translator for, for the Romans. <clears throat> and he wrote a history of the wars of the Jews. Here is something that he says about this terrible five-month period. Uh, While their inclinations to plunder was insatiable... He's talking about Jews inside the city. As was their zeal in searching the houses of the rich 
And for the murdering of the men and abusing of the women, it was sport to them. They also devoured what spoils they had taken together with their blood and indulged themselves in feminine wantonness without any disturbance till they were satiated therewith. So, feminine wantonness, probably uh, homosexual activity. And that's strengthened by what comes next. While they decked their hair and put on women's garments and were besmeared over with ointments and that they might appear very comely or very beautiful, they had paints under their eyes and imitated not only the ornaments but also the lust of women and were guilty of such intolerable uncleanness that they invented unlawful pleasures of that sort." And thus did they roll themselves up and down the city as in a brothel house and defiled it entirely with their impure actions. Nay, while their faces looked like the faces of women, they killed with their right hands. And when their gait was effeminate, they presently attacked men and became warriors and drew their swords from under their finely dyed cloaks and ran everybody through whom they alighted upon. And so what a, what a time of uh, chaos broke out in the city of Jerusalem during this five-month period. Now, with that ringing in your ears, let's look at this description of what these locusts, which actually are demons, but what they looked like from a poetic perspective. In verse 7 it says, "...in appearance the locusts were like horses prepared for battle." On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold, their faces were human faces, and their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. So there are some things about these demons that is attractive, looks intelligent, they've got faces like human faces, beautiful, hair like women's hair. They don't really have crowns of gold, but they've got something that could imitate a regal appearance. But their teeth are like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. Both Abaddon in Hebrew and Apollyon in Greek mean destroyer. And so I I told you earlier that the angel that he sees falling from heaven and who's given the shaft, the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit, is Satan. And these are names that are used to describe Satan. So the king over these demons is, is Satan. And so the first thing that we see in this chapter is the invasion of a horde from hell. Now, verse 12 says, "...the first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come." And we will see one of them, and this is a horde of Romans from beyond the Euphrates. Now, of course, Rome is not, I don't know how well you've got a map of the Middle East in your mind, but uh, Rome is actually west of Palestine. And so the majority of the Roman forces had come, but by this time, Rome had also conquered uh, all around the, uh, the Middle East, and they had conquered the, the uh, countries on the other side of the Euphrates. On the other side of the Euphrates were countries like Assyria, Babylon, and Persia. 
Now, do those names for you Bible readers, do they sound like anything in common? Yes, these are ancient foes of the Jews, the Babylonians, the Persians, and uh, whoever else I mentioned, those, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and the Persians. They were all three from on the, on the east of Jerusalem. So just on the east of Jerusalem, it's a great desert. And then there's the Euphrates River, and things begin to get fertile again over there in Iraq and Iran. That's the part of the country that we're talking about. And so historically, this had been a very troublesome frontier for the Israelites. Even when they were powerful, they were still tormented from the east by these powerful nations that would come and cause them trouble. And eventually, the northern kingdom was taken captive into Assyria, and the southern kingdom of Judah, several hundred years later, was taken captive into Babylon. And... uh, So then the kingdom of Babylon was taken over by the Medes and the Persians. You can read about that in the book of Daniel. And so the exiles who were in Babylonia with Daniel were under the the dominion of the Babylonians. And then midway through their time there, the Medes and the Persians came and took over and conquered the Babylonians. And so, but anyway, all these people are trans-Euphrates peoples and they're, they're vicious people. Now, again, as a point of historical correlation, I don't think we have to find historical correlations to all of this, but you can read in Josephus that during the attack on on Jerusalem, forces were brought from the region beyond the Euphrates and used to attack the city of Jerusalem. Now, let's read. I think these are hordes, hordes from the Roman Empire, not from Rome on the west, but from the Roman Empire, which included the Trent the countries on the other side of the Euphrates. Verse 13, Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God. Oh, now that's significant. This uh, golden altar before God, it's not the altar of burnt offering. This is the altar of incense. We've already seen it. We saw it at the beginning of, uh, of chapter 8. Just flip back there. And look, and we see in verse 3, an angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. And uh, we read earlier of saints under the altar calling out to the Lord, how long until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Well, now, in answer to those prayers, there is a voice that comes from the four horns of the golden altar before God, and look at what he says, time for vengeance has come, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. And there are historical documents that record that there were four legions that were brought from beyond Euphrates. So I think that these four angels represent not the heavenly beings that we usually think about, but that they were uh, probably Roman, Roman legionnaires who were in, in charge of legions. Uh, or, or it could be that we don't want to get caught up in the details here. That the Lord is saying, I have been holding back 
the hordes from beyond the Euphrates. Now I'm going to let them flow in. So release the four angels. And so the four angels, they release. And verse 16 says, The number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. Now literally that's 200 million. But uh, I think that this is probably just a representation of a fantastical number. Like we might say there were a gazillion of them. It's a number like that. So that just means not, not literally 200 million, but such a great, great number that we're using an, a hyperbolic uh, description of how many there were. And, but anyway, these, these hordes from the, from the east of Jerusalem, they come, and this is the way that he describes these, these Roman troops, verse 17. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. So fiery red, sapphire blue, sulfur is like in, real, real bright yellow. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. So fire and smoke and sulfur imitate the color of the, breasts, the breastplates they were wearing. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed. A third of everybody who lives on the whole earth. Did a third of the Incas in Mexico fall down dead? Did a third of the Native Americans in America fall down dead? No, I think that uh, what this is saying, a third of the people were killed. So, for there are a few of you in here who have learned Greek. The word here is hoianthropoi. I mean, it's, it's a genitive form of that, but it's literal. And so it just means a third of, literally, the men, a third of the men. But I think man stands there much the way that up until the last few years we used he as the indefinite pronoun. If there is anyone in here who needs to go to the restroom, he should leave. You know, we would use the word he even though it might be a woman. That's the way it's used throughout the Bible. Sometimes it will use the word for men and it just means people. I think that's the way it is here. I don't think it means a worldwide one-third of the people worldwide died, but a third. And I don't think it even has to be a, a literal third of the people. It just means a significant portion of the people were killed by this invasion. By their terrible, their terrible military tactics. So again, I don't think it was literally fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. I think this is just a very poetic way of describing the, uh, the terrible... Uh, the terrible destruction that was wrought by the Roman troops. Same with verse 19. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. Now you would think that uh, after all of that, surely everybody left would say, Enough, Lord, I repent. But hard times are not enough to make people repent. Surely you're impressed with this. I mean, we hear of people all the time who wreck their lives with drugs or with alcohol or with immoral behavior. They lose their families. They lose their health. They end up on the street. They're on the verge of committing suicide. And you would think, surely they're ready to repent. Surely they have seen that their way of ordering their lives has been a disaster. But no. 
hard times by themselves will never bring a person to true and genuine repentance. And that's the case here. It says in verse 20, the rest of mankind, the rest of the people who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons. Take note of that. So they have been tormented by demons and uh, probably they were not tempted to worship those demons. But in the Bible, the worshiping of other gods is described as the worshiping of demons. And so this is a way of talking about idolatry. They did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons, which is idolatry, and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries, or their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Now, what do we take away from uh, this passage of Scripture? One is that uh, God is patient, but His patience has a terminus. Before the days of the flood, the Lord said, I will not always strive with man. The years of his life will be 120 years. That doesn't mean that you'll live to be 120 years. That was spoken 120 years before the flood came. After 120 years, then the Lord pours out his his watery wrath upon the earth. And uh, the Lord warned again and again the people of Israel, these judgments are coming. During the ministry of John the Baptist and the ministry of Jesus, the demons were beaten back. It was like that man in Jesus' story who had the demon cast out of him. But then the people of Israel never repented. They never trusted in Christ. And so then the seven came with the first one and all eight of them inhabited. And Jesus says, that's the way it's going to be with this generation. And that was fulfilled. The Lord's warnings came true. And now, partly as a result of the hardening of Israel... The door of salvation has been thrown open to us non-Israelites. People who are Jews can still be saved through the Lord Jesus Christ, but there are very few of them who are. On the other hand, for about 2,000 years now, the Lord has been stirring mightily among us non-Jewish people. And today the door of salvation is open for us. We're not taken in in great groups. We're taken in one at a time. And the Lord Jesus Christ... Uh, warns you today, if you do not come into my kingdom, then plagues will come upon you eventually. Uh, The plague of hell is worse than anything that is described in the book of Revelation. But you can escape the wrath to come if you will repent of your sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I would dare say that there are some of you here this morning who acknowledge that if you were to die today, you would go to hell. And I wonder, what is it that keeps you from saying... Today I'll make it right. It's probably something. Maybe something that you have planned. Something that you're thinking about doing maybe later today. Maybe later on this week. Maybe you're addicted to pornography and you think, you know, if I became a Christian, I'd have to give that up. Maybe you are addicted to alcohol or some kind of a substance and you think, you know, if I became a real Christian, I'd have to give that up. Maybe there's an affair that's going on in your life and nobody knows about it except you and your lover. And you think, man, if I became a Christian, I'd have to give that up. 
Maybe there's uh, <clears throat> something at work, something at school. Man, if I became a Christian, I'd have to get a, an entirely different set of friends because none of these friends want to be friends with a sure enough Christian. In spite of all these plagues, they still did not repent of the works of their hands, nor did they give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and iron and stone. These are characterized as things that cannot see or hear or walk. And I might say that whatever it is that's keeping you from coming to Jesus could be put into that same category. What's it going to matter in five years? Oh, the question you ought to ask is, what's it going to matter in 100 years? In 100 years, will you be able to enjoy your sin while you're, while you're in the lake of fire? No. Repent of your sin. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Receive Him as your Lord and Savior. If, if you don't know much about Christianity, I'd love to talk to you some more. The people who brought you would love to talk to you some more about it. At this church, we don't ask people to come to the front. And one reason that we don't ask people to come to front in the invitation is that we don't want to deal with your spiritual concerns in a hurried up way. What you, the questions that you have are questions that need to be answered carefully and need to be answered from the Scripture. And so we would welcome the opportunity. But it may be that you know enough today to just call out to the Lord and say, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that Jesus died for sinners. Please save me. You've said that you would save sinners. Please save me. I give my life entirely into your hands. I will give up whatever you call upon me to give up. I will go where you want me to go. From this day on, I'm yours. Jim, Bob, come and lead us in a concluding hymn, please.